Hey guys, welcome back to the next episode of Physique Science Radio. We are here today with Eric Helms. Now, Eric Helms is actually uh, probably one of the coolest guys that I have, quote unquote, met online. He's actually uh, currently pursuing his PhD at um, at AUT in Auckland, and he's also a powerlifter and a bodybuilder. He works with 3D MJ, I gotta say that slow because I always get the letters mixed up. 3D Muscle Journey, it's what it stands for. Eric, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm glad to hear I'm the coolest because uh, that's the first time I've been told that. Well, thanks for being on a podcast. I actually stumbled I'm, across I'm your not stuff. Sure. I'm not you sure. You don't agree? This, so <laughs> yeah. Are you highly offended? <laughs> uh, no, I'm actually not cool, so it's all right. You know. <laughs> Lane, you're all right. <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah, Lane's all right. Okay. Cool. Thanks for joining us, Eric. We really appreciate it. How you been? I've been I've been well. I've been um, stressed, as you probably would understand, with just kind of being in the main year of my PhD. But um, hey, I signed up for it, so I'm all good. But no, life is good, and I'm looking forward to everything going on this year. Excellent. Yeah. And so, quick plug: uh, Eric will be joining myself, uh, Paul Ravella, and Lauren Conlon on a tour of Australia. We'll be doing a three-city seminar and camp tour. Uh, Sydney, or I'm sorry, we start in Melbourne the week after the Arnold Classic, uh, uh, Australia, and then we head to Perth and then to Sydney, and we will be doing uh, seminars and day camps in each place, or two day camps in each place, and then an extra day camp in Sydney. Uh, Sydney is already completely sold out for day camps. Melbourne wow. is pretty much sold out for, for a camp, but there's a few spots left. Uh, Perth, we have some spots, and then all the seminars have spots. So if you guys are interested, you can head to biolane.com and uh, book your spot now because it's first come, first serve, and we don't anticipate them lasting very long. So uh, Eric is one of the people joining us, and I'm sure he's going to do an awesome job. And uh, with that, Eric, why don't you talk to us about, because, you know, so he mentioned your background, you're doing your PhD, you, you compete. How did you get into this whole world? I, I kind of know a little bit of your background story, but probably don't know it as in-depth as I should. Well, I think, um, let's see, I think I started lifting weights in 2004 or so, um, and it was basically a way of dealing with some stress that was going on in my life at that time, and it started probably borderline unhealthy, destructive kind of behavior, um, but then it became something as I dealt with my you know, personal problems, in a, it became something I got obsessed with. I got bit by the iron bug, as the cliche goes, um, and I just became interested in it with my whole being. You know, I don't I don't really I kinda have on switches and off switches, which is something that is both good and bad. Yeah. Um, you know, it's something I've had to it's it probably made me a better coach because I've been able to help people um, you know, deal with that on their own. Um, but anyway, I, I became obsessed with the, the practice, the science and the experience of, of lifting weights and I took it just taking it as far as I could and eventually somewhere along the line. Um, I decided, you know, why don't I compete? And I did my first powerlifting meet in 2006. Um, I did my first uh, bodybuilding show in 2007, um, and I oh, started wow. See, studying. I, I yeah. thought that you had done bodybuilding first, so I didn't even know that. Yeah, it was a small meet. The meet, meet I did in 2006, it wasn't a sanctioned one. It was a push-pull at the local YMCA that I was working at. Um, 2005, I became a, a personal trainer, starting at the very kind of bottom rung of things. And that was after I'd finished an enlistment in the Air Force, and I was a uh, an Arabic translator and linguist. Uh, and I was going to pursue wow. prior to having That's lifted weights. Cool. It was definitely a, a career turn, you know, going from you know working for the military and, and potentially as a civilian for the Department of Defense afterwards to going, you know, instead let's start at a minimum wage, minimum wage, lift, right. uh, you know, help people lift weights. So that was an interesting transition for me. Yeah. That was, I guess, the genesis of it, um, and then I just kept taking it as far as I could. Um, you know, Lane, as you know, I, I was uh, hugely inspired by kind of you, your movement to, to really push the evidence-based science approach to to the sport. Um, you know, I worked with you in 2009, and which was which was a good experience and made me realize, I think, how much could be done in terms of helping competitors and the challenges they face. And in 2009, I teamed up with Jeff Alberts. Uh, you know, Alberto Nunez, Brad Loomis, right. and uh, we started 3DFJ, and most recently we added Andrea Valdez, um, and we've been going strong and, and just really trying to support the community of natural bodybuilding and, and powerlifting. So 3DMJ, Eric, is exclusively online coaching only? You don't do any in-person consults or anything like that right now? 
You know, we, we do consultations um, via by, by Skype that it's primarily it. You know, we have basically two pathways to working with us. We have, um, I'll say, quote-unquote, traditional kind of the model that, you know, Dr. Joe and, and Lane probably were the first ones to do of the week-to-week reports, uh, you know, and then, you know, adjusting training macros, talking, you know, recording videos to look at, you know, posing and all that type of thing, mm-hmm. uh, online coaching. But we also have one-on-one consultations, which we normally do do by Skype. Um, however, okay. you know, each one of the five of us in a different location mm-hmm. and occasionally, you know, we'll meet up with someone in person if they happen to be in the same area. It works with our schedules and it's, for whatever reason, more convenient than Skype. Um, you know, if I've got someone who's sitting, you know, two desks away from me doing their master's degree and they want to chat my ear off for an hour and sure. think about eating then I'm not going to be like, yeah, Skype me tomorrow and, and just sit a little <laughs> further away so I can hear you better, you know? Let's get behind our screens and then we can talk. <laughs> right, exactly. So so occasionally there's in-person stuff and we do, you know, seminars and camps uh, kind of similar to the way you guys do it. But um, yeah, we're actually doing our first, all five of us in the, the same place, same time seminar in uh, just two weeks in Sacramento, California. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. I did not know that. That's very cool. Yeah, I remember I, I came out and uh, visited you in uh, 2011 yeah 2011 i was doing giving a speech for the national dairy council yes shameless industry shill yes Uh, you you and alan aragon right yeah big big dairy big dairy um so uh and i was out there and uh i think it was berto reached out to me and was like yeah let's go train and of course you know it was it was fun. We just had like a big mashup of, of uh, everybody in the gym, and I think I think that was when you were telling me that you were interested in pursuing a PhD, and mm-hmm. uh, had asked for some advice. And so what what was the genesis of that? I mean, because yeah, it's a so big, I'm crazy about a, that also. Yeah, it's a big you know it's a big. It, a lot of people say, "Oh, I want to learn more. I want to do this. I want to do that." Very few people say, "I want to go do a PhD," mm-hmm. because most people understand. Well, they don't understand, but they they know that it's hard, you know. And for yes. most people, they're just happy reading a book from somebody else or, or or whatnot. I know for me, it was I I didn't want to take anybody else's word for it. I wanted to know, and uh, and so I'm wondering if it was similar for you. I, I feel like the did you ever see the last Indiana, Indiana Jones that was terrible, the uh, Crystal Skull? Unfortunately, unfortunately, <laughs> so I did. At the end, at the end, where the bad the bad lady's like, I want to know. I want to know. That's that was like me. That's you. <laughs> yeah, that was me. So I'm glad that you had like that similar experience. Uh, yeah, in a way, I did. I think, I think the same semi-healthy masochism that drove me to compete in bodybuilding um, probably drove me to to pursue my education as far as I could take it. You know. Um, sure. It was interesting because you know you, you read stuff online about bodybuilding about you know how hard it is and how grueling it is and, and if you're a a bodybuilder at heart. Part of you is intimidated by that, and part of you is like, "I got to do that." You know, I got to see if I got if I got the chops. You know, right? Um, and I had a similar kind of way of looking at uh, my, my education. I think, you know, I had to build confidence in in my physique and my capabilities and willpower to to, to decide to pursue a, a bodybuilding prep. And the same thing was true of my education. You know, um, when I finished my bachelor's and I did really well, I was like, "Hey, you know that." Maybe I'm smarter than I think, and I took the CSCS exam, passed it, same thing, finished my, my first master's, and then at that point, I kind of went, you know, I've been, I'm teaching at a personal training college here, almost full-time, I'm coaching, I'm writing articles, I'm well-respected, you know, I've got a master's now, maybe I should look into this thing, and I, uh, you may remember, Lane, that I, I, I got you to talk to me on the phone and give me an hour of your time just to kind of discuss, uh, you know, options, because I was going to be looking at, at protein for my... Uh, right. My, my second master's, which I still very much appreciate to this day. Um, and yeah, that was at the point where I was like, you know, I had I had the combination of the, uh, the masochistic drive and the self-confidence to, to actually step in and do it. Um, the role model I had was probably my uncle, who uh, mm. he just, you know, he, he changed careers in his 40s and did his PhD in his 50s. Wow. Uh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Ballsy. Yeah, and it was not an easy process. You know, it was uh, not to put kind of his business What out are you there, talking about, Eric? Haven't you read my Twitter? Anybody can get a piece. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's kick, right? Um, but, it, but in terms of, you know, the academic difficulty, sure. But the, the strain it put on his, on his life, on his family, on his psyche were, were, were up there. And it took him a lot of time to finish his, um, 
his dissertation. And I went to the defense, and it was just really cool to see him go through that process and finish it. And also, uh, watching him not knowing if he would finish it, thinking he, you know, he uh-huh. may have to pull out, you know, the the financial burden, the, the emotional burden. So, um, oddly enough, that that motivated motivated me to do it. And I also felt um, probably a burden of not a burden, a I felt like I needed to give back. Um, mm. You know, I had learned so much from my schooling um, and from my pursuit of the sport that I realized that, you know, until you get to the point where you're actually doing research, you are consuming information, you know. You may be disseminating it. I think, you know, a review is a great thing, or writing article is great, but until you're actually doing research, publishing papers, and adding to the body of knowledge, you're not really... In, in, a, in a pure sense, giving back to um, science, I guess, and to the community. And I wanted to, to, to do research so that bodybuilders could actually improve, you know, and to, to directly help the scientific and, and, uh, and uh, sporting community. That's really interesting you say that, Eric, because I've been called kind of a, an academic elitist, I guess you might say, because, um, you know, people say, because somebody's, I was kind of in a debate one time, and people were like, well, don't. Like you're, are you saying that you have to do research if you really, you know, that you can't just read? The, I can read the studies, read everything that somebody's done. I said, listen, look, I'm, I'm not saying that's not an admirable, admirable thing, and you you should read research, but it's just different. You you can't. Mm-hmm. There's some things that you just can't read in abstract, and you can't even if you're reading all the papers, you you just don't understand. Like you won't understand the nuances of the data. And if somebody would have told that to me going into my PhD, I'd have been like, oh, you're being elitist. And then uh, after after doing one, I said, "Nope, I get it." You know, you know what I mean. I, I guess it's more about um, the the methods and critiquing study design. I think it's I think it's hard to do that without actually having designed it. Uh, but I do agree with you that um, you know it, it it it's there's that availability that people can write reviews and and, and review things, and I, I think that is good. And you're contributing to body literature literature. But I think doing I think it, there's a really hard to get a substitute for doing original research, and maybe I am being a little bit of elitist, and I, I'll, I'll admit that. Um, but I just know doing it myself changed my perspective. Um, and so but it's interesting that you had that 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 drive to contribute to the the literature because I think that's I think that's important. Like people don't realize that that a PhD basically is, you have to, it has to be something novel. And when people ask, hey, how long is it going to take me to do a PhD? <laughs> it just depends. <laughs> yeah, it, it depends on where the data takes you. That's very true. And, um, and no, I agree with you. And I think, I think any, any worthwhile experience should change your perspective. You know, I, I totally agree. And I think um, it has it is done the same for me in terms of what goes into actually collecting data. Um, and both both the little the little things that are the little sacrifices you have to make to actually get the study done, and mm-hmm. uh, the things that are much more difficult than you thought they would be, um, right. trying to figure out how you're actually going to make meaning of the data and do it and run the stats. Uh, so it, it is it is sometimes frustrating to see the the armchair you know PubMed uh, study readers g- give you shit about a study when it's like <laughs> you know I, I spent like for my masters I spent six months trying to get this like MRI running that was running on like Windows 95 software to hopefully have a good measure of body count. <laughs> Literally six months doing this uh, on the side of doing the rest of my, my masters and it didn't even work. And then, so having done that, having someone go, oh, why'd you use, you know, skin folds for your, for your masters? It's like, because damn it, I couldn't do anything else. You know, I busted my yeah. ass. Yeah. yeah. Or that's... getting turned down on a grant so that I couldn't, you know, afford DEXA. So yeah. all those things are, are kind of... Why didn't you do it in bodybuilders? You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that um, you know that 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 kind of speaks to I don't want to get into it, but kind of cognitive dissonance that if something you know disagrees with so many preconceived notions, it doesn't matter what you've done or how great the study was, they they are going to find a way to to essentially uh, not not believe the data. Um, yep. And uh, that's you know I probably spent too much of my life trying to convince people who can't be convinced about things. Um, but uh, I th- I, let's take a quick commercial break and when we come back I want to talk to Eric actually about his PhD and, and what he's found and what studies he's done. So you're listening to Physique Science Radio and we'll be right back. 
Hey guys, Lane here. Well, you all know how much I love variety in my diet. I can't stand eating the same bland food every single day. That's why I love www.myoatmeal.com. It's an amazing website where you can go and customize oatmeal. I know, I know, I know. Why would I want to go customize oatmeal? I can eat it right out of the bag. Well, let me tell you why. MyOatmeal.com has 22 billion combinations of flavors and ingredients. You heard me right. 22 billion combinations. Whether you're picking out a pre-made blend or making your own customized blend, they have all kinds of flavors. Want red velvet cake? No problem. Snickerdoodle? You can make it happen. Butter rum? Oh yeah. Cheesecake? You can get it done. And you have all kinds of additives you can add. Apples, raisins, pears, nuts, all kinds of seeds. And you can sweeten it any way you want. Need to eat gluten-free? No problem. They've got it. The best part of it all? The macros are listed as you're customizing your blend. And they change depending on which ingredients you add. Eating a little bit lower carb? No problem. Choose ingredients that make your carb count lower. Need more protein? Add higher protein ingredients. You can customize your blend to make it almost any breakdown that you want. And the prices and macros change as you change your blend. So go on over to www.myoatmeal.com and check out some of the blends that have already been made. Or be adventurous and make your own. That's myoatmeal.com. Check it out, guys. Hey guys, many of you out there know I spend a lot of time bagging on bad coaches. And certainly, there's more than enough of those to go around. But a lot of times people ask me who I do recommend. Well, one person we can recommend wholeheartedly is Paul Ravella of Pro Physique. Paul has received more referrals from me over the last two years than any other coach, and with good reason. Paul is competent, professional, caring, and carries himself with a lot of integrity. If you hire Paul, you're going to be getting the very best at a great value. Paul is also one of my closest personal friends, and I can say with absolute certainty, I feel 100% comfortable with referring my closest friends and family to him, because I've done that. Paul Ravella of ProPhysique.com. Check him out, guys. Hey guys, you know me and you know I love cooking up macro-friendly option meals. But sometimes when I'm always on the go, that's just not an option. So when I'm on the go or can't cook a meal, I love Quest Bars. You know I love protein and fiber and these are packed with 20 grams of high quality protein and super high in fiber. And it's easy to stay on target when you've got Quest Bars that you can bring with you anywhere. They're delicious compared to other bars that taste like bricks and leave you feeling gassy and bloated. So pick up a bar of Quest Bars today at questnutrition.com, GNC, and Vitamin Shop. Also, follow them on Instagram at questnutrition and youtube.com slash questnutrition for great recipe ideas to keep you on your goals but eating delicious. Hey guys, one of the things that's always on my mind is how can I give back to the industry that has done so much for me? That's why we formed the BioLane Foundation. The BioLane Foundation is a philanthropic initiative to raise money for grad school level research that is going to contribute to the fitness industry. And 100% of all your donations will be paid out to students. If you'd like to donate, you can go to BioLane.com, click on the About tab, and click on BioLane Foundation, and you can put your donation in through there. Or, if you're a student and you'd like to apply for a grant, go to BioLane.com, click the About tab, BioLane Foundation, and you can find the applications online there. Thank you guys so much, and I'm looking forward to all the great research that comes from these donations.
You're listening to Physique Science Radio with Lane Norton and Sohee Lee. If you like what you hear and you'd like to learn more about us, read some of our articles, please visit my website at www.biolane.com and Sohee's website at soheefit.com. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you listening and hope to hear more from you in the future. All right, welcome back. We were just talking about Eric's career path, more specifically, uh, Lane and, and Eric going, were going on about their uh, their uh, uh, their thoughts on higher quality education, um, which I am totally on board with and appreciate for research and whatnot. But I actually wanted to ask Eric uh, about more about your PhD uh, that you're currently pursuing at AUT right now. What are you conducting research on uh, nowadays? So at the moment, I am looking at... Uh, broadly, methods of auto-regulation of resistance training and power lifters. So, um, Lane, you know, you, you lifted with this guy at a pretty high level, Mike Tuchera. He, of course. Uh, yeah, he, he's such a cool abnormality, I would say, uh, out there of someone who generated a very, very novel idea, a very, very useful concept and expanded on it of uh, using a, a modified RPE scale of, of uh, selecting load from powerlifting. And then even creating something called fatigue percentages, which is a way of auto-regulating the amount of volume you do on a set-to-set basis. Um, and there are similar concepts out there in the research, like APRE or flexible nonlinear periodization, where essentially, you know, what you do on the day when you step in the gym can be changed based on your performance or, or your recuperative status. And um, but nothing, no one has studied any, anything as sophisticated as really as what uh, what Mike T has has generated. So I. Um, I contacted Mike T, got him on Skype, and I said, hey, man, I want to study, essentially, uh, what you've done, build on it, look at it, and uh, and I wanted the blessing, and I wanted to pick his brain about it, and like the true awesome guy he is, he was like, yeah, pick it apart, you know, like, tell me if, if something doesn't work well or if it does, I'd love to hear more about it. So um, the model of my PhD is essentially looking at... Um, this form of auto-regulation in, in resistance training, specifically for powerlifters. And I would imagine that this uh, area of study is relatively, um, I guess the research is pretty sparse at this point, huh? I, I can't imagine there's too much research already done on this topic. No, and, and funny thing, though, is that there is uh, one other uh, lab that does, does similar research, and that's Dr. Mike Zerdos out of Florida oh, University and his team. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, good guy. And I actually met him. Um, at Mike T's seminar that he did in Sydney, I want to say in December of 2013. Um, and completely independently, you know, we had both been very, very interested in some of this stuff. And uh, Zerdos and I hit it off. Um, and it's, it's turned into a great partnership since he's actually the, uh, the third supervisor on my PhD. Um, so the, the terminology is a little different when you do a PhD outside of the United States. Instead of having a chair and a committee, you have supervisors, um, and they act as your mentors. But instead of them end up being the ones who actually grade your PhD, you submit it to external examiners. So it's kind of like you and all your supervisors. Yeah, it's different. All of you and your supervisors' butts are on the line, so you have to make sure it's rock solid. And it's a little scary, you know. Um, well, the plus side to that is they're probably not going to let you submit it until they feel it's pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely not, because it looks just as bad on them as the student. Like, yeah, you fail your PhD, and their students fail their PhD, you know. Yeah. Um, so it, it is a slightly different process. Also at AUT, we do something called, uh, it's called Pathway 2, but basically what it means is thesis by publication. So instead of having your typical intro literature methods, discussion conclusion as your body of your your dissertation uh, and it's also called a thesis for some reason the dissertation is what you do for a, a lower level uh, anyway it's just terminology but the thesis by publication means that each chapter is a distinct peer-reviewed published article or, or as many of them as possible or they might be in the, the review process so for example you'll have an unpublished introduction and then your literature review is actually a published literature review that is uh, your your second chapter, and then you'll publish a bunch of studies, and then write a conclusion that is unpublished, and that's your thesis. Um, so it eliminates the the upside of it is that it eliminates that frustration of trying to turn uh, you know a dissertation into publications down the line when you're already you know burned out and want to be done and never look at your data again. Mm-hmm. You know. So. Yeah, actually, it's not all that. I don't think it's University of Illinois at least was was 
basically you had to have a certain amount of publications. So you had to be, I think you had to be first author on two papers minimum. And yep. then um, like another two paper, it was either three first author papers or two first author papers and then two other novel research papers that your name was on. So, um, but yeah, it was kind of the same thing. Like by the time I was ready to graduate, like two of my chapters were just, I basically, I had to modify the formatting, um, but I basically just dropped uh, peer review papers in there. And then, okay. and then the ones that were in review, like one was in review, and so I kind of had to put it in there as as is. And then uh, one was was not under review yet, so I just kind of had to speak about it, not in hypotheticals, but as in you, this is my data, and you got to kind of take my word for it. Um, right. But uh, yeah, so it doesn't sound like it's all that dissimilar. Um, now tell us. So uh, can you can you share with us any findings you've had? Like, what have your major findings been? Yeah, so so basically, there, there's kind of three stages of, 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 the, of the PhD. Um, the first one is defining the kind of the, the term. So uh, I was fortunate enough to work with Dr. Z and his lab on uh, on the RPE scale. So we published in the JSCR recently, um, and it was Zerdos's first name on the author. This isn't actually part of my PhD, but it's very relevant to it. Um, just looking at the differences in trained and untrained lifters using the RPE scale while working up to a 1RM on squats um, and seeing the differences and how accurate it was mm -hmm. and then correlating that with velocity. So as you can imagine, as you get closer to a max, bar speed is going to slow down, so it's kind of a way of validating the RPE scale. Mm. Uh, right? And we found there was a significant difference in RPE score uh, given by experienced and inexperienced lifters when they achieve max, uh, and a slower velocity achieved by the more experienced lifters. Um, so in a way, this was this was basically saying, hey, you know, if you're an experienced lifter, you're going to be more accurate at gauging when you're near a max, which makes sense intuitively, and you are actually more neuromuscularly efficient, meaning that you can keep position and continue to grind through a lift when you're slowing down while a novice might lose position or have some inhibition that, that prevents them and they can't actually truly I mean they, they can do a max but let's say they haven't reached their full neuromuscular potential of maxing yet uh, yeah, that and they I, might have. I think all of us have, have, not all of us, but a lot of us have had that experience in, in like other, either us lifting or watching other people where they'll go in, uh, you know beginners will smoke something like absolutely destroy it and then you go up 5 kilos and they get stapled you know, exactly. and yep. it's like, do they do they really not have the strength for that? Or I think, like you said, it's probably a combination of mental and physical. So they're not able to keep positioning. Or you know, if you're doing a true max, the likelihood that you're going to get out of position is probably higher. And mm -hmm. um, so experienced lifters know kind of basically not to panic under those conditions and can continue to grind through. I mean, if <laughs> if you want to watch grinds, go watch my squat run. I was RM. just going to say, I've seen that with you, Lane, and yeah. also with actually Paul Ravella. Both both of you, when you squat, I watch you, and you're like, on rep three, I'm like, okay, they're down. This is the last, last rep. And then somehow you manage to crank out like four or five more reps. I'm like, I don't know how they do it. The bar is moving so slow, and it makes me so nervous just watching you guys. <laughs> but it makes sense, Eric. Your, the findings of your study make complete sense. And that actually kind of reminds me of, I think, um, a year and a half ago, Lane, one of your uh, VIP camps back in Tampa, uh, Dr. Zodoros at the at the gym had his, um, I forgot what what machine it was, but he was measuring the um, bar, you know, the bar velocity when Tindle. people were squatting Tindle and. Unit. Is that what it's called? Tender, yeah. yeah. Is is that what you guys use yeah. for the yeah. study? Which was really cool because I was watching him and I it, remember. It depends on where you're at. The um, the big competitor with the Tendo unit is what's called a Gym Aware. Okay. So it measures uh, bar velocity, right? Which I, it was it was just so cool, and uh, I remember I there was a female. Um, pro professional competitor who was squatting. I think she was doing 175, and she was like, she did like two reps, and she was about to go down for the third. But I think uh, Dr. Zotos took a look at the velocity. He started. He goes, "Rack the bar, rack the bar. You're done." And I think, you know, it's cool that he knows. He can just tell um, by the speed of the bar, you know, how many more reps you have, and whether or not you're gonna make it back up. And um, you know, she was a pretty experienced lifter back then. But n nice to see it, you know, verified by by your guys' study. Yeah. yeah, and Zordos and, uh, is actually abnormality in himself. He's very much like me. Like he can grind out a lot more than you would think. And uh, Mike has actually told me he's like, "You're pretty much the only person I can't predict a lift for." Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
Sorry, Eric, yeah. you, you had something to contribute. Oh, yeah, I, I was just saying that um, that's exactly right. You know, di different people will have uh, uh, different differing abilities to, to, to really grind out a rep. Um, there's, there's a side study we're doing that's not related to my PhD that's quite interesting, and we're comparing high bar and low bar squats. Um, and interestingly enough, we're comparing them in, in Olympic lifters and power lifters. So there's another confounding variable there, or in my opinion, something an interesting covariate in that Olympic lifters are taught to squat a little differently than a, than a power lifter besides just the bar position. You know, they, they drop into the hole and rebound a little, a lot more than a power lifter will. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are some theoretical, you know, physiological different adaptations that might come from that, like, you know, isoform to tighten or uh, maybe different, you know, SSC properties in terms of the, uh, the non-contractile elements, um, which we can speculate about. But interestingly enough, I, I, we're, we're curious to see if, if there will be a different velocity that, that someone who's an Olympic lifter and the squats high bar maxes out with than a, than a, than a power lifter. So it's, uh, it's interesting to see whether or not this is always the case and, and to what degree, but I suspect it'll follow the same pattern, just be slightly faster. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, we both know somebody who squats that way who I compete with is, or have competed with, who Bryce Lewis. And, yeah. uh, you know, you, you'll see Bryce hit a squat, and he'll either smoke it or miss it. And, um, you know, he ha his grind just looks different because it's going to be at a higher – it's going to be much more it's there or it's not there, um, mm -hmm. and it's going to come at a higher sticking point. Because yeah, people will – I've seen where he's commented that people on his videos say, wow, man, you had like 30 more pounds in you, and he'll say – no, that was it. <laughs> yeah. And because uh, his perception, and, and, and this is correct, he knows his body. He knows what velocity he's that, that, that he needs to achieve coming up out of that hole in order to finish. Whereas the same thing, like you can look at my lift, and I, 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 I tell people this if you looked at like the top five lifters at nationals, I, when we're warming up, I will squat 500 pounds slower than every single one of them. I, I, mm. I can almost promise you that. But my, I will still end up squatting the most. And part of that is, one, just the, the style of squat I have is just a little bit different. But also um, just the grind, the experience, um, and just differences between people, you know? Yeah. And I think that's why, um, and I talked with Mike about this, when you're using the Tendo, you can't really compare it across individuals, in my opinion, that the usefulness of a Tendo is to track your own bar velocities and, are, and, and correlate those with RPEs mm. of yourself and then say, okay, for me, I know that if I'm doing, uh, if I hit 85% at 0.3 meters per second, that's a really good day for me or that's mm. an average day for me. And then if I come in and I'm warming up and I hit 85% at you know, 0.25, I know, oh, okay, this is maybe not such a good day. Would, would you agree with that or am I possibly missing something there? No, I think you're right. And actually, it, it opens up a lot of interesting topics like uh, the whole idea of velocity-based training of if you can get an individualized velocity profile based on exactly that if you correlate enough of those data points and you maybe have some type of uh, much more affordable than a gym aware or a tendo unit uh, piece of equipment that can help you do that over time um, and then the question also becomes is is that actually going to be better than an RPE rating um, I, I think we're probably kind of right around the tipping point where right now probably an experienced person using an RPE scale that's well set up is going to be slightly more accurate than velocity, but I don't know how much longer that's going to be true for. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've, because I've, I, I can actually tell you, I've, I've had days where I've gone in and just taken video, and I'll be squatting and go, oh man, I don't feel so good today. And I'll look at the video and go, oh, it wasn't that bad, you know? And yep. uh, so, yeah, I think sometimes um, our perceptions can be different than the reality or vice versa. Now, I know you, you also did some. Um, you did a, a, a review on, on protein intake, I believe, and um, had, a, I don't want to say controversial findings, but a little bit different than kind of even like maybe what I suggest, not by much. I want to, huh. I always like tell people like uh, whenever I disagree with like experts in the industry, like people will pick out stuff like me and Alan or, or some other people yeah. and they'll say, we'll see, and they'll almost like, like that we disagree on everything. I said, no, we, I think most of us agree on 95% of stuff. It's the 5% we argue over. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that, like what your findings were and what you based those findings off of? Yeah, so um, to, to, to kind of a little bit, take a step back just for a second, that, that is actually the literature review from my, uh, my, my master's of philosophy. So I had to, 
because the system's a little different in New Zealand, you don't take any classes as a part of your PhD. Mm. So it means you, you have to have a master's degree to get any, into the, the PhD to assure you have the classwork done. So, and not only that, you have to have a master's degree where you actually did research. So the master's degree I did in the States prior to coming to New Zealand uh, was, was only coursework and like exams. Um, so, so I actually had to do a second master's when I got out here, which was not a big deal. They have almost something set up for people in that situation because they have so many international students and it's called a master's of philosophy. And it's basically just a one-year thesis. As soon as your proposal gets accepted, you've got a year to do your ethics studies and, and write a thesis. And, that, and that's what that came from. Um, so anyway, my master's thesis was I wanted to look at um, protein intake in non-overweight, calorie-restricted, resistance-trained athletes um, and see if that modified protein, protein requirements or probably more accurately an optimal protein intake. Yes. Um, because the, you know, as, as we both know, if you look at the, the majority of research, it kind of caps out around maybe two grams per kg is what could be theoretically beneficial for a, uh, a lifter. Yes. Uh, yet if you look at other studies, they'll say, oh, and by the way, your requirements go up if you're highly active. Oh, and you'll benefit from more intake if you're lifting weights. Oh, and your requirements go up if you're if you're you're lean. Oh, and your requirements go up if you're dieting. Definitely heard all like, of those things. Right. So there are, there are individual papers on each one of those, but no one discusses what happens when they all converge at the same point, or at least no one had. Um, and age, I, I think, age is another factor as well. Yeah. There you go. So uh, I, I don't I don't 100% know for sure if I was the first one to publish anything on that, but I I believe I was the first person to publish on saying, hey, what about when all these factors converge? And I did a uh, systematic review of all the times those factors did converge, and there's very few studies actually where that happens. Um, and you know, not enough to do a true meta-analytic, uh, but uh, enough to where I was, you know, I, I basically did a, uh, you know, review of each of the studies, and then just looked at what ranges at what point where you had uh, better fat-free mass retention or lower, and and made some some recommendations based on that. It was you know mostly hypothetical since there's not enough data, and then I went ahead and did a uh, crossover uh, study on that exact topic for my the study for my film. And so, uh, what what kind of um, so what recommendations did you make out? What results did you find? What recommendations would you would you make out of that? Yeah, so kind of like that that the cusp on on the six studies of where we started to see better fat free mass retention was right around like two point two two point three grams per kg of lean body mass, and then above that seemed to have uh, you know a more protective effect. Um, so the recommendations that that we put in the study, and this was the first time a recommendation that appeared based on fat-free mass rather than just total body weight. Mm. I think that's an effective way of parsing out whether or not, um, I think that can be a very effective way of giving protein recommendations because the, the vast amount of research in this area on humans is on obese people and overweight people because that's where right. the money is. That's where the problem is, the obesity epidemic. And 1.5 grams per kg being you know a, a good value is kind of often seen in an obese person um, relative to fat-free mass is a much higher value in someone who's say 15% body fat, 10% body fat, like a, you know, a bodybuilder starting a contest prep. Uh, so anyway, uh, the, the range I gave was 2.3 to 3.1 grams per kg of fat-free mass. Uh, when I present and when I talk to people, I just keep it simple and I say 2 to 3 grams per kg of fat-free mass. Um, because really, it's it's it's. I don't think it's such a hard hard line number. Like it's not like two point two versus two point three is going to make all all the world difference. Uh, so when you have your lay person who, um, and whenever I, you know, when people talk about lean body mass, I always have to wonder, um, what would be your best recommendation for the average person to um, best gauge their own body fat percentage and you know, consequently their lean body mass. You know, that, that's a tough one because a lot of the measures out there, the actual measures are not very, they might be good for a group in research like DEXA. You know, that's becoming right. more and more popular. You yeah. go get yourself DEXA. But they're actually not very accurate for an individual doing repeated measures unless you get a whole lot of repeated measures. Mm. Um, and so, so often, as, as odd as it sounds, I think using a, a visual gauge can be useful or if the person is not overweight, Actually, setting it by by body weight, I think, is fine. Okay. It's going to a slightly higher number. So I'll I'll recommend 1.8 to 2.8 grams per kg of protein if someone is 
uh, not overweight, and I will recommend two to three grams per kg of fat-free mass if they have a, a good gauge of that because you know maybe they have access to a dunk tank or maybe they have a really good eye for that if they've competitive bodybuilder it's been very lean kind of thing that's funny eric because that's actually very similar to what i do because people say well hey what about lean mass versus fat free mass and you know if i do this one thing it's 1.8 grams per kg and if i do this other thing it's 2.1 grams per kg and it's like just chill <laughs> like yeah. th those are not yes they're different but is it actually different <sighs> you know like there's a 20 percent error in food labels just you know inherently so like yep. you're actually like you're wor you're actually worrying about the wrong thing, you know. Like you're more likely to be off because of that. So um, I tell people like, listen, if you're if you're if you're worried about it, then err on the high side, you know, and and you're fine. Like if you're somebody who hates to eat protein, and like it's a chore for you, then err on the low side, you know. But like it's not, it's not like oh, you know, all my gains are gone because I got two grams per kg compared to two point two grams per kg. That's not how it works, you know. Definitely and um, so, yeah, I mean, especially because when you get to that, that's a very high level of protein for most people anyway. Like you're getting, you know, you're getting 95% of the benefits regardless. So even if you're off by a little bit, like you're, you're missing out in very little. Now, we're, you and I are both, you know, we're concerned with squeezing that last little bit out that we can. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as you know this, uh, most people spend way too much time worrying over really, really small details. And uh, actually, so I'll, uh, I'll let, let that segue into something else that uh, you have a book, uh, ebook out called the, I think two ebooks, right? For nutrition and exercise that are the, 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 the pyramids, basically trying to help people determine like what actually is important because like just for an example, Sohi and I talk about sustainability of diet a lot because right. at the end of the day, like regardless of how you choose to diet, whether it's ketogenic, high carb, low carb, uh, high protein, even low protein, whatever. Intermittent fasting. Yeah, wh whatever. <laughs> pick, pick your, pick your yeah. term. Paleo. Whatever you can do consistently for a long period of time, that is the most important thing mm -hmm. up front. And once you can do, once you have that base covered, then you can worry about some of this other stuff. But most people, I tell people, I'm like, do you really think that? Wh why did you fail on your goal of wherever it was to 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 bench press? 300 pounds or, or to get down to 8% body fat? Was, was it because you were eating bread or was it because at a certain point you just went off the rails or, or quit? Like think about what actually caused you to not reach that goal. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think probably if I was to try to define my career, it would be based on helping bodybuilders actually figure out what target they should be aiming for, you know? Yeah. Um, because you can't hit it if, if, if you think there's a hundred of them and you're not sure which one's more important or if you don't even actually know that the bullseye is gives you gives you more value than somewhere else. You know, I mean the 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 commonality of people focusing on minutia that that has a very, very small impact, not realizing that that makes such a small difference compared to consistency and those big ticket label items is is is, is huge. I mean people are always doing that. Um, so I, I felt that, you know, sure, the information's nice. Like, what's a good recommendation for protein? What's a good recommendation for your, your, your rate of weight loss, et cetera, et cetera? What's a good recommendation for volume or intensity? But I think what is probably, I hope, more helpful to people is to get an idea of priorities so they can know where they can put their efforts. And uh, I think that's something that is often lacking, and it's because the online, you know, fitness community was born out of the, the magazines. Well, not even just gurus, but I mean the, the culture. Like when you think about it, before the internet was around, we all we had was magazines, and a magazine is limited. You know, you're, how many times can you can you give an arm workout? You know, and um, it almost breeds this this discussion in bodybuilding of these 500 word little tidbits, and it's turned into kind of a clickbaity, real quick, you know, dime a dozen articles that pop out that pop out, and it it prevents a a discussion that really kind of gives you a framework or a tutorial of, well, what should I focus on? It's like, oh, there's a new article about fish oil. That's the big thing right now, uh -huh. you know? Um, and that's fine and good if you understand that fish oil makes 1% of 1% of a difference, you know? Right. In the grand scheme. But it, we often don't present information in that way. Eric, and yeah, I actually, I think, um, sorry, er, sorry. No, like, go ahead. Uh, really quick, for the listeners, uh, that actually reminds me of 
one of the um, video series of yours actually from, I think, I don't know if it was last year, maybe two years ago, but on YouTube, you guys, uh, you know, Team 3DMJ, you have a really cool, um, it's called the Muscle and Strength Nutritional Pyramid Series that mm-hmm. is super uh, informative and, you know, Eric, you've got your little whiteboard and your drawings of the cart before the horse and everything, and, you know, you talk about how calories come first, you know, in terms of order of importance and impact, calories, then you have macronutrients and fiber and so on and so forth. So for the listeners out there, um, just search, I think you can just search Eric, I, I typed in Eric Helms Nutrition Hierarchy and it came up, but uh, you can subscribe to Team 3DMJ. They've got a really, a lot of really um, informational video logs. So I would recommend you check that out to help supplement this podcast episode. Yeah. Um, so to kind of give some background, right. So in 2013, um, I had just made the move to New Zealand and I was doing a lot of work because it's very expensive to make a move from one country to another and also pay for a master's degree. Um, and I was doing something like one consultation a day and almost did that for three months straight. And I realized you know, these are consults, so not people I was working with on a week-to-week basis. So they're people oh. who just popped up. You know, they, they found me, so they tend to be, you know, they have an interest in an evidence-based approach. They're, they're, they're driven. Um, but they all had the same problems of just being overwhelmed by the information and not having a priority list, you know. So I decided, you know, I've got to, I've got to put something out to the masses, and that's what spurred the creation of the nutrition pyramid. Um, then two years later, I created the training pyramid. That's a little harder for me to order. And then most recently, what Lane alluded to is I decided to make these into books. Right. Um, and I got the help of Andrea Valdez and Andy Morgan, who are, you know, really good at, at kind of the, the fine detail work of something like this because I'm much more of a big picture thinker and um, their perspective and help was invaluable and we just recently released the ebook versions of uh, the muscle and strength training and nutrition pyramids and they've been really well received as some of my most proud work. Um, I'm sure my supervisors are asking me when the hell did you have the time to write this? You're supposed to be doing the thesis. <laughs> um, however, it, to be fair, it did start as a transcription of the videos, and then we just used that as a skeleton to build an entire, oh, you know, cool. mountain off of. But yeah, so you guys can check out MuscleAndStrengthPyramids.com and get the, the, the video links are there as well as the uh, links to the books if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those those are excellent, and um, you know that, that's interesting. I'll, I'll kind of wrap this up, and you can give your thoughts, Eric. Um, like I don't write articles that often, even though I have a huge demand to do so. I have a huge demand for video logs, articles, and, and people say, "Why don't you do them more often?" I said, "Because I'm not interested in clickbait. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to write an article unless I feel like I have something con- to contribute." And yeah. you know, there's just something that novel that comes up. Like you said, how many articles can you write about? Hey, this amount of protein is probably good, or hey, volume is important. You know, like. There's only so much you can do unless you really want to get down to the details in minutia, which I listen, I love the minutia. Like minutia is where I live. That's where I did my research, right? Yeah. But for most people, I know that writing that article, if I write an article about branched chain amino acids, for example, which I've done in the past, and, and you know, I, I think the branched chain amino acids can have a limited application that they I mean, full disclosure, I sell them <laughs> through my line. Mm-hmm. Um but if I write an article about branched chain amino acids, and even like years ago I wrote about consuming them between meals because there's some evidence they can overcome the refractory response and help uh, optimize muscle protein synthesis. I mean, you wouldn't believe the, the amount of people who don't understand like basic periodization who are asking me about consuming branched chain amino acids between meals. And it's like, bro, hey, you, you, I, I, yes, it can help, but like the amount it can help compared to like if you just learned how to program correctly, it like. Yeah. Dude, you're missing out on so much. Like, so I tell people, like, with regards to nutrient timing too, it's it's not that it's completely unimportant. I don't think it's completely unimportant. I just think that on our list of priorities, it's way the hell down there, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So if you get all this other stuff taken care of, then if you want to worry about how you time your nutrients and you want to worry about some supplements, that's cool, you know. But like, don't, don't, like you said, put the cart before the horse. Don't, you know. I had somebody. The classic scenario is. One of my people was worried about nutrient timing because I do give nutrient timing recommendations. And they ended up having too many of their carbs early in the day. And they said, well, should I still get as many carbs pre and post workout this evening? And I said, no, just yeah. hit your overall mm-hmm. daily, you know, because that's the most important. It's not like those carbs you ate at breakfast are like just going to disappear, you know. They don't count. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that's kind of a classic, you know, that, that daily intake is much more important than how you distribute. So I'm, I'm sure you've come across cases like that. 
every day, every day. Yeah. I mean, so, go know, ahead. It's a, it's, it's a constant. I uh, whether it's a question, uh, I don't get it as much from my clients anymore because I've been working with a lot of the same people for a while now. I haven't been taking out a whole lot of new people during my PhD to stay sane. But um, so you know, my my clients, the guys and gals I've been working with for for a while, they're of course very tuned into this thing, but. I get a question on Facebook or via email or on the fact page almost every day of people uh, trying to or, or misunderstanding the order of priorities and you know or as Alan might say you know worry about worrying about the pebbles before the big rocks and uh, I think it's a very understandable thing too with just the the amount of information that's out there and also given that some of the bigger concepts are they're harder to understand and even harder to apply so it's it's easy to latch on to well, how many grams of carbs should I have around my workout? Uh, uh, you know, and it isn't necessarily the most useful piece of information, but maybe they'd latch on to it because they can uh, at least action it. You know, yeah, it's also so, it's also sexier to tell somebody that they aren't losing fat because their makeup isn't organic or because they're drinking diet soda than it is to tell them about <laughs> its consistency and all that's those right. other things. That's right. That's true. That's unfortunately true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that, that's very true. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, before we let you go, um, is there anything you want to plug? I mean, you've kind of given us some some of the things you got going on. Can you tell us, like, anything you've got going on, or anything you want to plug? Well, I, I managed to work lots of my plugs into the conversation pretty organically. Yeah, very, so. That was very actually good. really well done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a very, I'm extremely skilled shill. So, um, <laughs> but uh, no, on, on a serious note, yeah, I just if anyone is interested in trying to get their priorities in order, please check out Muscle and Strength Pyramids for the books. Um, if anyone wants to hear uh, me speak, I've got a lot going on this year. I'm, I'm obviously going to be in Australia for three weeks with uh, Paul, Lauren, and, and, and Lane, so check that it. out. Yeah, I'll, I'll be much better rested than they are because I'm coming from New Zealand. They have to fly from the States, so I'll look really <laughs> good. Um, and then we're also doing uh, a speaking engagement in uh, Sacramento on the uh, 12th and 13th of February. And then Very cool. I think the weekend after that I'll be in Canada. So I'll be all over the place. You can check out my speaking schedule on that same website, Muscle and Strength Pyramids. Um, and if you're interested in working with us or just checking out what we do, please see our YouTube channel, Team3DMJ at YouTube, and then our website, 3DMuscleJourney.com. And thank you guys for having me. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Thanks Eric. So we much. really appreciate it. Thank you.